The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard. and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And now we're gonna turn to Matthew 18. And we'll be reading verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's pray. Lord, you are good, and we know that your word um, is powerful and that it has authority over the church over our lives. And so God, we just come to you this morning in reverence and in awe, and we ask that you would that your holy spirit would speak to our hearts and communicate this word to us, that you would communicate this gospel and that we would our eyes would be opened and we would see you for who you truly are, God. I pray that if if this passage is challenging for many of us or if it's hard to understand that you would give us wisdom and clarity and discernment. And God, I pray that because of this text, because of your word, we would be a people of grace and of mercy and unity. And we just know that you are powerful to do those things in our hearts and in our church. So we surrender to you. We declare that we need you, God, this morning. We need you. And we need your wisdom and your guidance. And so we give all glory to you. And we praise you, God. And we ask that you would teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Randall, and I'm the lead pastor of Grace City. And right now, uh, as it has been talked about, we're in the middle of a strategic alliance together. Uh, Better together is what we've been talking about. And so uh, Pastor Scott and myself and uh, the the, the church, we've all been exploring, okay, God, is this something that you're calling us to do? And so I'm just thankful to to be here. You know, one of the things we can do sometimes is, is just think so far in the future that we're not thankful for today. And so just being thankful for today, right? You know, I was hit with that last week as I was walking out of church service last week and, and told about the news of Kobe Bryant, his uh, daughter, Gianna, and the seven victims that were really in this, this crash, right? The, the helicopter crash the, that happened last week. And I think over this past week, it's, it's hit us as a nation and really our world so hard um, because 
Many times what happens is we, we, we don't see death um, in a very public manner like that in a way where we, we feel it. Like I, I felt it last week. I didn't know him personally, but I felt it, right? And, and, and it, it, it really hit me because my wife asked me a couple days later, she says, you're still feeling that. Like what's, what's going on? Like how, how are you processing that? I said, you know, it hit me because the day before, I was at a tournament with my son. We were flying back here. And then just hearing the news of a father, multiple fathers, daughters, gone like that. And and we got to sit on that for a second. I just need to pastor us through that because the reality of death, it happens. And that's why this is so important. Because the day before that, I'm talking with my son. He, he had one of the biggest moments in the tournament. He's a, he's a martial artist. He biggest ter- made it to the finals. Loses a heartbreaker in the finals. And I'm sitting with him. And I'm looking at him. I say, son. I said, that hurts, right? Losses hurt. But I said, there's going to be bigger losses in life. I said, someday, buddy, you're probably going to lose me. You're going to lose your mom. The reality of death, right? Losing someone close to us. I think that's why it's hitting us so hard right now because as I'm looking at him, I'm talking with him and saying, hey, there are losses. I said, this is a loss, but there's bigger losses in life. How do you deal with it? How do you keep moving forward beyond the loss, beyond the hurts, beyond the pains? So I just want to say as a church body, like, that's why this stuff is important. That's why we need Christ, because there are ups and downs and there are losses that we're going to face, but how do you get through it? What we're saying every week is this, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's, it's his word, it's how we keep pressing on, because I know that there are people who've been just all over the internet, like, what did they believe? What did they, what did they believe, right? We want to know what they believed, and when you and I have that moment where it's done, what did we believe? That's the most important thing. And so today, we're, we're back in the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in Matthew 5, uh, 20 through 26, and Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and, and, and today, we're, we're going to be continuing talking about what Jesus said about what do we truly believe about who he is and, and who God is in our lives, because that's important, and it's so important um, that it affects every part of us. And so now he gets to this place of relationships, relationships, okay? So Pastor Scott did a great job on this last week, and we're talking again on this because it's so important. It is so important. And so the message is entitled, How God Heals Our Relationships. How God Heals Our Relationships. Like I said, over the past month, we've been studying uh, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at how this sermon gives us marks or indicators of what a true Christian looks like. And, and throughout the sermon, Jesus uses this term, the kingdom of heaven. And what we've said is these are people who've, who've entered into God's kingdom, right? God's kingdom. We're God's people. This is what God's people look like. 
This term describes somebody who's been radically saved and transformed by God from the inside out. A new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. See, this is important because too many times people look at the church and what they think is they're hypocrites. They say they believe one thing, but they don't really live it out in everything that I see from their life. And so what we need to do is really come back and say, what did Jesus say a true Christian looks like? And this is important because the Sermon on the Mount confronts us with this question. How are you different? How are you different? John Stott once said this. He was a pastor, a theologian. He says, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. What he's saying is, when you open this book and you really start to read this book, it's going to confront you with patterns and behaviors that say, man, I've done that. That's me. And the reason it does that is to bring us into this this reality of, you know what, I can't do it. I need God. I need God. And so our text today is Matthew 5 and 18. And in, in today's passage, let's be honest, it gets very personal It's very personal because it confronts us again in this area of relationships, which are personal in our lives. This is where it confronts our marriages, our friendships, our relationships with others, coworkers. Right? This gets personal. And so Jesus says this. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, but whoever... Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I don't know about you, but that is serious, right? Like, this is, this is a serious passage. We really need to think on this one. Jesus isn't just saying this, but he, he means it. And so what is he saying here? Well, he's first taking the sixth commandment, You shall not murder from Exodus 20, verse 13. And he is deepening it, not discarding it. Deepening it, right? Some people think, well, well, he's he's just giving us this new law. And that's what Jesus was trying to confront the Pharisees and the scribes on. He's saying, no, I'm not giving you a new law. I'm giving you the law. And I'm not discarding it, but I am deepening it to help you understand what this really means. So Jesus is giving commentary here on what it means. And he's taking it from just the external and bringing it to the internal, to the heart. God desires to heal us from the inside out. James Boyce, commentator, says, he says, for centuries the scribes and Pharisees had been teaching that to avoid murder was to keep the sixth commandment. Jesus teaches that men have broken the sixth commandment even if they have only been angry with another or called one another a fool. True Christian morality must arise from the heart and as a result of this, no one but God can provide it. No one but God can provide it, right? If if we 
come to this passage and really let it evaluate us in our lives, no one walks away unscathed. No one walks away and says, I've done this perfectly. Right? Because we see like the rich young ruler who walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus says, you follow the commands? He says, I've done them my whole life. And on the outside, the exterior, yeah, he, he might not have murdered someone. He was a religious leader. But Jesus, again, like Jesus does, he gets deeper than the surface. And we find that that man was guilty just like every other person. Right? The, the, the Ten Commandments are not just a checklist that we come up and say, I've done this one and this one and this one, and I've done this one, okay. No, no, he's saying it, it, it reveals us as people who need God. That's what it does. And so today, how does God heal our relationships? Well, we're going to break this text down. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be breaking down that, that passage from Matthew 5 and then getting into Matthew 18. But here's the thing. In today's text, we learn three ways God can heal us. And so God heals us by, number one, defining true righteousness. Number two, examining us inwardly. And number three, restoring broken relationships. Defining true righteousness, examining us inwardly, restoring broken relationships. So the first one, defining true righteousness. Let's look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? If you're doing Bible study right now, just underline that word, never. In the Greek, it means never right? So never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is important. So Jesus is trying to tell us, here's the secret. Here's something really important that you need to understand. So what does he mean by this? Well, first, we must understand this term righteousness. Because in the Bible, we see righteousness attached with another word before it, and it's this, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. So there is something within us that can make us feel like I can become righteous on my own. I can become righteous on my own ability and my own strength because what we compare it to is a standard. So this whole time, Jesus has been talking about the standard. The, the standard is God's word. That's what righteousness is. It is God's word, approval upon God's word, living it out, God's word. But what we see is in the Bible, there are people who become self-righteous. Now, Luke 18.9 gives us a good working definition for self-righteousness. Um, here's what it says about the people. It says, the people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. They viewed themselves that they were righteous, viewed others with contempt. Now, what we need to understand is that self-righteousness comes in many different forms. Comes in many different forms. Right? It's very sneaky in that way because what it does is it takes good things and makes it something that we say, I'm good enough to be in God's kingdom. I am, on my own strength, able to do it. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not self-righteous because 
what we do is we have this picture of this really religious person who's very snobby toward other people and condemning other people. Like, right, we think, well, I'm not in that category. But Trevin Wax says it well when he says, the human heart's default mode is self-justification, a desire to put forth our own righteousness in order to maintain our standing before God and others. We might not say, well, I'm not self-righteous, but have you ever tried to justify yourself and make yourself feel like, well, I'm good because I do these things. I'm right because I think this way. Everybody else is wrong, but I am right. And so I'm going to fight for my way and the way that I want things to be. I've done it. I was sitting with the college city group this past week, which I encourage you, if you're not in a city group, jump into a city group. I have seen great things happening in city groups. But here's some of the college students that are in the city group. And one of the things that they're going through right now is called the gospel-centered life. And they're in chapter two of the gospel-centered life. And one of the things it talks about is self-righteousness. And so we're all sitting in a, in a uh, circle and, and, and Jen Darm, who's down in the bottom corner there, says, okay, we're going to break up into threes. And so we all break up into threes. He says, okay, we're going to start talking about this, this in particular. Where are the areas you are self-righteous? Great. <laughs> and so there's all of these different categories. And so I'm going to name some of the, the, the categories, and maybe you say, well, I can resonate with that. Okay, the first one is job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Most people think that before they have kids, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. You say, you make all these promises that, oh, I would never do that as a parent. And then you end up doing it. Intellectual righteousness, I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness, I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness on the other side. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Shame on those schedule people. Self-righteousness, mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Right? You see, the scribes and Pharisees had made all these rules and regulations that weren't in here. But what happens is they, they, they started to water down what true righteousness is. It is found in the law of God to the point where they believe that in their ability, in their strength, they could make themselves right before God. And so Jesus is restoring the integrity of the law, of his word, and also the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, and he's saying to us today, you have such a low view of God's commands and God's holiness that you, can, you think you can earn your way into heaven. 
You know, if I, if, I, if I just read the Bible enough and I got my own personal Bible, you know, that thing that's in you that's like, man, I feel like if I do all of these things, then that's what makes me right with God. But Jesus is saying no. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That standard that you have in your mind, that standard that makes you think you're a good person, why don't you compare it to this? Why don't we hold it up to this? Can anyone stand? Not me. Not on my ability, not on my strength. There's no way. And so the question is, so how can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Here's the answer. It's when you hold on to the only righteous, holy, perfect God. Jesus was sinless. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is holy. And what this is, is an invitation not to hold on to your own self-righteousness saying, I can do it, but holding on to God's righteousness in Jesus Christ and saying, he did it. He did it. Martin Luther called this an alien righteousness. That is the righteousness that's not from yourself, but from another, instilled from the outside. This is the righteousness of Jesus by which he justifies you through faith. As it is written in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. You see, everything is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, not you. And what is this, what does believing this do? What is believing that Jesus is the only righteous standard? He's the only one that lived it out perfectly. What does that do to you? What does that do to me? It humbles me to the dust because I realize I could have never done it. I could have never done it. It humbles me, but it also lifts me to the skies because it helps me to believe that he can. He did. It's all wrapped up in him. Do you see why this standard is so important? Because this first, understanding this first, is then how we interact with other people. What's it do? It gentles you. It humbles you. It it makes you feel like, you know what, I, I didn't deserve it in the first place because it was all God's grace. It was all him. See, Jesus' righteousness is greater than my righteousness. And when I hold on to Jesus' righteousness, it actually starts to change my righteousness. That's the second righteousness because it's you are growing in righteousness as a person when you are holding on to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17 says, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How are you going to push forward in life? How are you going to get through the difficulties when you hold on to Jesus Christ? It's not having a low view 
of God's holiness or God's commandments and saying, well, maybe I can get those. Right, when I first started going to church, I thought it was just, hey, I thought I'd just kind of dress up, you know, and go and all these things. And then I started to hear about the truth that Jesus did it for me. Will you hold on to that today? Because that's the true righteousness. It's found in Christ. So secondly, what's next? Well, it's examining, examining us inwardly. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Jesus is starting to pull back the curtain on our lives. He's starting to pull back the curtain on our lives. Right? It's not just on the surface, but now he's getting specific. And so first, in, in verse 22, he says, everyone who is angry. Now, what type of anger is he talking about here? Because in the Bible, there are, there, there are places where there is righteous anger. It's in the scriptures, right? All anger is not bad. At times, we see Jesus getting angry. The question is, what type of anger is Jesus speaking about here that causes us to be liable to judgment? Well, he says, everyone who is angry with his brother. This is a relational discord that happens because he starts to tease it out later, but a relational discord that happens with another person because of personal pride. Personal pride. You know the thing that breaks up relationships more than anything else? Pride. What's the middle letter of pride? I. What's the middle letter of sin? I. <laughs> it's all about me. And so what we see here is that this type of anger is built off of and rooted in pride. D.A. Carson, commentator, says, indeed, there is a place for burning with anger, our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, but if at offense to ourselves. Let us admit it. By and large, we are quick to be angry when we are personally affronted and offended and slow to be angry when sin and injustice multiply in other areas. Jesus forbids not all anger, but the anger which arises out of personal relationships. Right, and so, so what this is, 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 is confronting the, the personal pride that we have. How does this type of anger manifest itself? Well, he gives us some signs. Verse 22, second part, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, this word in particular, you fool, is the word raka, which means empty-headed, worthless, no value. It's basically saying to another person, I'm better than you. And the, the way that, that, that the kids are saying it today, you're trash. That's what they say, you're trash. That's trash. That's what it is. And, and so... This is very applicable to today. 
See, prideful anger manifests in insults, name-calling, exclusion, looking down on a person, not acknowledging their existence, profanity, right? All of those things start to come out of the heart, and it comes out of anger. This past week, my daughter came home in tears. She said, uh, there's kids at school that started an I Hate L Club. She's seven, right? And, and, and there are things that happen to us in life like that, that wound us, right? That, that happen, and, and, and maybe it was because of something we said or did, but then this other thing happens. And, and so what is the intent behind this type of anger, this type of thing that happens in our lives? Well, it may not be to physically harm another person or kill them, but here's the truth. It is intended to wound them, right? It is intended to wound them. To, to wound a person's confidence, worth, dignity, self-image, that's real. That's there. Why do we say hurtful things? Because at some level, we want the other person to believe it. To believe it. I said it because I wanted you to believe it, because I wanted you to know how hurt I am. And so I want you to believe this hurtful thing about you. Right? There's that old phrase, hurt people hurt people. And so at some level, we want the other person to believe it. December 2016, research by a team of economists at the University of Sheffield found that four of the five most popular social media platforms harm young people's mental health, with Instagram being the most damaging. The survey concluded that Snapchat, Facebook, and Twitter are also harmful. The four platforms have a negative effect because they can exacerbate children's and young people's body image worries, worsen bullying, sleep problems, and feelings of anxiety, depression, and loneliness. The more the research comes out, the more it tells us that, you know, that old thing that we were told, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that that's false. It's false. What's true is what Jesus says is that our words do matter and they do hurt and they do leave deep wounds in our lives. And just as a parent, what this means is that all these social media streams that people are on today can become inward knives and spears at our own kids. They're being thrown all the time, right? What are the things that, what is, what is media, news media platforms like TMZ built off of? Drama. Here's what this person said about this person on Twitter. Here's what this, this is happening here. There would, if, if we lived this out, there would be no TMZ, right? If we actually lived this out, there would be no media outlets like that. But that's the world we live in. And Jesus is saying, is that the world that you live in? Because I'm calling you to be different. Sinclair Ferguson said for Jesus to 
kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination or to belittle another by calling him fool is part, of, part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. Clearly, he does not mean that it, it makes no difference whether we gossip or stab, but he does mean that both activities reveal the same animosity of heart to our neighbors. Our words are the index of our true spiritual condition. And under the, this definition and umbrella of what Jesus is giving us, we are all guilty and in need of true righteousness that can only be offered by God. Right? Right. Lastly, restoring broken relationships. Look at verses 23 through 26. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now there's two parts to this. He's talking about two different scenarios here. The first one, when someone has uh, something against you. When someone has something against you. So we see it in verses 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now here's the meaning. God does not want us to be fake. He does not want us to be people who are acting like everything's together. But if we are honest and real, it will cause us to start to mend some of the brokenness in our own lives. And a lot of that has to do with relationships. Relationships. And so our relationship with God starts to produce an initiative, an initiative to reconcile broken relationships with others. See, this verse indicates an urgency to make things right. Right? He's saying, okay, if you are offering something before God and realize you have a, a broken relationship in your life, go and make things right with that person. So what this is is an initiative that starts to happen, not on the other person per se, but on you. Right here. Why? Because the person worshiping has had a real encounter with the God who has gone to great lengths to reconcile with them. You see, God has so radically moved, he so radically touched the worshiper's heart that his love and grace are now moving him outward to cause healing in the broken areas of their life. Right? It matches up. See, the worshiper no longer can live life like they did before. If they're truly worshiping God, they can't live the same any longer. But instead, it starts to affect every part of their lives. They can't go on being hated and hating others. No longer do, do we see worship to God as just a religious task or responsibility that doesn't affect us, but it radically changes us to the very depths of our brokenness and starts to bring healing. 
Your worship matches your life. Here's the thing. We can't control if someone else in our life will receive that I'm sorry or that I forgive you. We can't control that. But what it's saying is that if you as a believer within your strength, within your power, have the ability to go and say that I'm sorry or I forgive you, that before coming and in worshiping, you should go and reconcile with that person. This isn't about fake worship. God doesn't receive that. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, does the, Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. This isn't about some religious task or duty. This is about us being changed as people and God saying, obey me. Right? Trust me. Go to that other person. Secondly, when you've sinned against someone else. Now look at verse 25 through 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now this is important because this is now talking about when we're guilty. When we're guilty. He says you're accuser, but the, the thing is at the end of it, the accuser was right because then you end up going to prison, right? So the accuser was right in what they were saying about you. And so this is about being unwilling to confess and repent. And this reveals to us the urgency not to pretend like we're innocent when we're not, but to come clean. Why? Well, as Christians, we no longer pretend like we're something that we're not. The gospel confronts our pretending and brings the truth to light. And Jesus gives us the strength to embrace that truth because you know what? It's hard. It's hard. But also Jesus tells us that the, that the truth will eventually come out. It will come out. Luke 8, 17 says, for there is nothing hidden that will, be dis that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known and, and, or brought out into the open. Right? Jesus tells us that. So why does God command this type of initiative to come from somebody who's truly a Christian, but also the type of transparency to say, I'm sorry, and I was wrong, and let me make things right, and let me confess? Why does he do that? Because he desires for us to have healthy relationships, healthy friendships. And that doesn't happen in the darkness or in secret. It happens in the light of God by his astounding, awe-inspiring grace, coming face to face with another person, with another human being, not through a screen, but face to face with a person. So some takeaways, how can we respond? First one is this, allow the gospel to humble you. Allow the gospel to humble you. 
You know, one of the hardest things to get over is our own pride, isn't it? That own feeling, that, that feeling like I'm right. It's hard. But the gospel, it breaks through into our lives and, and changes us. And so I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. I think of myself less. When the gospel comes in, when the gospel breaks through, it humbles you to a place where you say, you know what? This is who I am. And I am still loved by God. I'm still loved by God. The second is this, embrace God's steps toward reconciliation. You know that passage from Matthew 18, one of the things that, 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 that it helps us with, that, that God commands us, is, is really how do we take those steps towards reconciling with other people? And, and I just want to say that a lot of the times we don't do this very well, do we? We don't. And so all I'm going to say today is Matthew 18, 15. If we get Matthew 18, 15 right, a lot of things are going to fall into place. <laughs> a lot of things are going to get better. But a lot of the times, Matthew 18, 15 doesn't happen. And so here's what it says in Matthew 18, 15. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Okay, and so what happens is this. Instead of going to that person one-on-one, -on -one, what we do is we go to the two or three other people that are outside of it. Or we go to a big group of people and plead our case. But yet this person has never had the opportunity to hear it from our mouth. Has never had the opportunity to say, you know what? This person cares about me enough that they would share that with me so that they can be won over. Isn't that a great term? Isn't that, that great what Jesus says? It's like, he said, so that you can win them over. Right? It's that, that, that there's, there's, there's a win in this. But again, a lot of times there are losses in our lives. So I'm saying, can, can we commit to that Matthew 18, 15, at least there, and let the Lord bring things out, right? Because we want to get so quickly to the other end of the extreme and saying, you're done. You're out of my life. I'm angry with you. See ya, right? There's some great gospel steps towards reconciliation. The gospel-centered life talks about this first. I'm, I'm just going to break this down real quickly. First, heart. The heart of it is repentance and forgiveness. Hey, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Or I forgive you. Right? Repentance and forgiveness. Second, the power to do that. It doesn't say it's in you. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power to be able to do this a commitment to understand and engage with the other person, to understand where they're coming from. 
and engage and say, hey, I'm here with you and we're gonna work through this. Direction to convey and invite. Hey, let, let's just convey that this is everything that you, you've seen and, and all the truth here. Let's just convey it. And hey, I invite you to, to, to speak truth in my life too. Feeling, life is challenging, right? Life is challenging. It's hard to do this. But the goal is God's glory and the other person's good. God's glory, the other person's good. Man, I hope the best for you. I want the best for you. And I want to see God glorified through this. And the result, there'll be healing, reconciliation. Right, so embrace God's steps towards reconciliation. God is not silent on reconciliation in our lives. Not silent on it. Because he knows that we got a lot of relationships. But let the Lord do this. Third, receive your strength from God. You can't do it. Receive your strength from God. I love this quote from Paul David Tripp. He says, remember, it is not your weakness that will get in the way of God's working through you, but your delusions of strength. Delusions of strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Point to his strength by being willing to admit your weakness. I can't do it, but God, you can. And so ultimately, where do we find our greatest healing? It's by knowing this and believing this. That in my righteousness, I could never stand before God. I'd be, I could never stand before God. But because of the holiness and the love of Jesus Christ, God didn't stay up in heaven saying, you should get up here to me. You should get your life together. If you want a relationship with me, you got to get your act together. You got to get up to me. No, God himself came down to me in the dust and said, I love you. And I will do everything within my strength to make things right with you. And what that was was Jesus living the perfect life, going all the way to the cross, dying for my sins in my place, and rising from the dead and said, son, daughter, come with me. Come with me into a life where I will heal your life in ways that you could have never done on your own. That's what the gospel is. And we will not water down the gospel and say that you can do it on your strength because you can. It is only on Jesus Christ. And so will you hold on to his righteousness and what he's done for you? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, you came and you heal us from the inside out not watering down your word and the, 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 the power of it. But you came and lived it out and said, come, believe in me, trust in me, and I will heal your life. And so, God, I pray that today, if there's anyone here who's just hearing that, or just for me, just to be able to process that again and again, we never get away from this message. We always need it. Help the gospel to be strong in our lives and our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for being so good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.